He's a true American hero, in my opinion. We had the opportunity to be together in Israel a number of months back. Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin, founding member of the Delta Force. In 1980, Jerry Boykin was the Delta Force operations officer in the Iranian hostage rescue attempt during the term of President Jimmy Carter. In October of 1983, then-Major Boykin worked as an operations officer in Grenada uh, during a dawn assault to free some Grenada government officials held by Marxist People's Revolutionary Army. General Boykin was shot in the arm, splitting the bone completely in two. In 1989, he was in Panama as part of the mission to apprehend Manuel Noriega. In 1992 and early 93, as a colonel, he was in Colombia leading a successful mission to hunt for drug lord Pablo Escobar. Colonel Boykin was in command of the Delta Force, tracking down militia leader Mohammed Idid in Somalia, during which time the infamous Battle of Mogadishu took place. Boykin was wounded in a mortar attack in the compound. He was the Under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence in the Department of Defense, and General Boykin has told his story in his new book that he'll tell you about, Never Surrender. Please welcome General Jerry Boykin. very much. God bless you all. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. Thanks for letting me be here, uh, uh, Skip, and uh, this beautiful city of Albuquerque on this uh, very special day. I uh, got up early this morning, and I thought maybe this was Roswell, because when I looked out on the horizon, <laughs> I could see that we were being invaded. And that was uh, quite a spectacular thing there. Kamal, thank you. Thanks for bringing the truth to these people this morning. For those of you who haven't figured it out yet, he's the real deal. And I have known Kamal for a few months now, and I must tell you, I find him fascinating. Every time I'm with him and, and I hear him speak... Now, let me uh, do something very quickly. Do we have, I, I, uh, as Skip said, I spent uh, 36 and a half years in the Army. I uh, spent all, most of that time in special operations. Do we have anybody here that has spent time in special operations? Okay, for those of you who have, I want to caution you ahead of time. When you fall asleep during my talk, don't be snoring because it bothers people. Okay. Now, where are my Marines? All right. I know I got one right here. Okay. All right. Okay. You can always tell the Marines you hear their mating call. Yeah. And, uh, of course, you know why Marines have one brain cell more than a horse. Right? So they don't leave droppings in the street during the parades. I love my Marines. My dad spent 32 years with Marines, so I just, that's a skeleton in my closet. I'm going to talk to you today. Talk to you today about uh, 
really about uh, very much what Kamal discussed today, but uh, I'm going to talk to you in, in some precise terms about the threat. You know, I came in the Army in 1971. Our nation at that time was involved in a, a very unpopular war in Southeast Asia. More importantly, we were in a nuclear standoff with the Soviet Union. We were deeply embedded in what became as known as the Cold War. The Soviets had an arsenal of nuclear weapons that could destroy America, and likewise we had an arsenal that could destroy them regardless of who fired the first shot. And most Americans understood the threat. They understood the danger. It was an era of what we called mutually assured destruction. That concept was nearly put to the test during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1963 and other lesser-known events that almost brought us to the brink of nuclear war. It was a dangerous world. Americans understood it. And then we believed that we would never see another threat that was as serious, a threat that could actually destroy our society. In 1989, the threat began to subside as the Soviet Union disintegrated, and many Americans breathed a sigh of relief as Ronald Reagan's policies began to bear fruit, and the U.S. was the clear winner of the Cold War. Most Americans believed the United States would never face the same level of threat again. And sadly, many still believe that. Many in this audience today, I would say, still believe that we could never face another threat that was as serious as the nuclear standoff in the Cold War. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you, I want to look you in the eye and tell you that I believe we're facing an even greater threat today than that that we faced in the Cold War. Thirty-six and a half years I've served this country. I believe the threat today from this thing called radical Islam, what Kamal was talking about, is the greatest threat that we've ever faced. And it can destroy this nation. Let me caveat my comments today by telling you this. In that 36 and a half years that I served this country, I supported and defended the Constitution of the United States, including the First Amendment which provides for religious freedom. I believe every Muslim in this country should be allowed to worship as they please until they cross the line. And when they cross the line and they become a jihadist who wakes up every day believing that it is his direction from Allah to kill infidels and destroy this nation and subjugate my society and my nation and my posterity to the rule of Allah. I will fight those people until I draw my last breath. If you think that I sound apocalyptic this morning, it is because I mean to. I believe we're facing the greatest threat our nation has faced. It is one that can destroy us unless we begin to recognize the threat until you understand what Kamal said to you this morning and accept it. We can't win this war. I spent my last four years in the Army as the Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. 
I've seen a lot of intelligence at the very highest levels. What I'm talking to you about today, there's nothing classified about it. But I don't need to talk to you about classified information. There's enough information out there right now that we know what they intend for America. All you have to do is read what they've written. All you have to do is listen to what they've said. And by the way, one of the strange phenomena in this country today is when you repeat what they've said, you're called a radical extremist yourself. You're called a fanatic. The media went after me in 2003 and called me a radical evangelical crusader because I spoke the truth about what this threat is all about. They've told us in unequivocal terms what they intend to do. Look, it's out there. It's on the web. It's in books. Get the things that Kamal showed you this morning. Buy my book first. <laughs> and I'll even sign my book for you. Now, how are you going to sign a CD? Right? But after you've gotten my autographed book, go over and get one of Kamal's things. He's telling you the truth. The jihadists have told us exactly what they intend to do. None of us can forget the vivid images of 9-11-2001. We were devastated by the magnitude of the death and the carnage there at the World Trade Center and the, and the Pentagon. We were all united in a willingness and an eagerness to fight back and to defeat this enemy that had come against our nations. We had not been attacked since December 7, 1941, and suddenly 3,000 people were killed. Our churches were filled with Americans seeking solace and direction from the Almighty and Sovereign God. And our president had almost unanimous support as he stood and told us that we will not Will, we will not waver. We will not forget. You know, uh, the only place in the world that didn't stand with us were the Islamic republics, those nations with Islamic populations, where they danced in the streets and sang gleeful songs because of our misery. And Americans wondered where the next attack would take place and when it would occur. And now seven years later, most of us in America have resumed a normal life, and we give little thought to the next attack. Our government has been successful in thwarting the attacks that have subsequently been tried, and there have been many, many of which you don't even know about. But they've tried again. And because of those thwarted attempts, we've become secure. We feel Secure. We almost look at the events of 9-11 as a one-time event, and we think that it can't happen again. But, you know, even those terrorist attacks like 9-11 are not the thing that I fear the most. What I fear the most is our tolerance. In the name of multiculturalism and permissiveness, we're letting our society be invaded from within, and those who flocked to the churches for God's direction and God's blessings after 9-11 have now gone back to a twice-a-year attendance on Christmas and Easter. We as a nation don't seem to see the realities of the threat we're facing. Complacency 
It's a dangerous attitude. Well, as I mentioned earlier, all we really need to do is read and listen to what they've already told us about their intentions. They told us repeatedly that they plan to destroy this nation. That's what Kamal just told you. They plan to destroy America. We are a democracy. It was founded predominantly by Christians on Judeo-Christian ethics. Democracy is incompatible with the Sharia law that Kamal talked about. One of the first tenets of Sharia law is that there can be no other law, no man-made laws. Sharia law that is given in the Quran and the Hadith must reign supreme, and there can be no man-made laws. Therefore, as a democracy, we are the target of the Islamist, of the jihadist, of the extremist who want to destroy this nation. No nation has influenced democracy any more than America. Therefore, as long as we exist, they cannot succeed. America must be destroyed in the minds of the jihadists. What are their goals? Simply stated, as, as Kamal told us earlier, it's world domination. Jihadists intend to subjugate the entire world to Islam and their God, Allah. They tell us that repeatedly, but many of us just simply don't believe it. I caution you that it is not only possible for them to succeed, but it is, in fact, succeeding today, right here in our own country. I recently had a man that is a renowned authority. I won't give his name, but he came to the small college where I teach in Virginia to talk to the professors there about this whole concept of what the jihadists intend for America. As he was giving his briefing, and less than an hour into his briefing, one of the very erudite and conservative professors on the staff stood up and said, Stop. I've heard enough. This cannot happen in America. He said, It can't happen here. We're a democracy. We're a Western democracy. He said, James Madison had it right. As a democracy, we provide far more than any other form of government or any other society. It can't happen here. Well, as much as I respect my colleague, He's a wonderful professor. He's dead wrong. It's already happening, and Kamal gave you some good examples of what's already happening in our country. I can show you photos of Muslims marching in the streets of London with placards that say, Freedom, go to hell. Europe, your 9-11 is coming. By the way, Europe is Western democracy. And all you have to do is take a look at what's happening in Europe. Now listen, those people that bombed the subways in London were born and raised in the United Kingdom. I'm amazed when I hear people say, well, how could they identify with Pakistan? They were raised in England. How could they identify with Pakistan? They don't. They identify with Islam. They identify with a future caliphate that is yet to be established. Islam is a way of life for these jihadists. It's everything. It's their legal system. It's their social system. It's their economic system. He was talking about Sharia financing 
It's part of the entire Sharia law. It's everything. They don't identify with England. They don't identify with Pakistan, Germany, France, Belgium. They identify with Islam, with a future caliphate, where the Mahdi, the 12th Imam, the Islamic Messiah, one day will govern and bring peace. If you look at the history of that caliphate, you see that it at one time covered the Middle East and North Africa, all the way up into the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal, all the way across the Pyrenees and into what we know as France today. It was Gaul at that time. They've done that twice, trying to establish this caliphate so that the Mahdi might return, the Messiah and rule over the entire world. They were turned back twice at the gates of Vienna by the European armies. And some believed that that was the end of it. No, I say to you today, they never stopped trying. They changed their tactics. They are still determined to establish that caliphate so that their Mahdi might return. And by the way, they believe that that caliphate must be established in a period, in an era of chaos and bloodshed. And people like Mahmoud Ahmadinejad believe that it is his personal responsibility to usher that Mahdi back in. European armies can no longer turn them back. First of all, because now they are invading Europe from within Let me tell you, I don't know if you've read a book by a guy named Mark Stein, S-T-E-Y-N. It's called America Alone. Read it. Mark Stein will tell you and show you unequivocally that by the middle of this century, Europe will be an Islamic continent. This is what Mark Stein says. He says that it takes a 2.1 birth rate for any society to sustain itself. By the way, that's exactly what America has, 2.1. The average birth rate in Europe is just over 1.3. In fact, places like Russia, 70% of the pregnancies in Russia are terminated. And because Europe has such huge social programs that depends on the next generation to pay those bills for the medical programs they have, the retirement and pension programs, the welfare programs. And by the way, there is no next generation for Europe. At a 1.3 birth rate, they don't have a next generation without a 75 to 80 percent tax rate They don't have a next generation to pay those bills. And what's their solution? Their solution is to bring in immigrants. Where do you think they come from? The Middle East and North Africa. And guess what their birth rate is? 5.6. Do the math. This is not about Scripture or anything else. This is about mathematics. And by the way, I'm an ag major from Virginia Tech, so I don't do math real well. I'm taking Stein's word for it. (laughs) It's frightening, friends, to think that that continent could be an Islamic continent by the middle of the century, but the math doesn't lie.
The figures don't lie. Even places like Germany are now paying people to have children. Think about that. Let me give you a little bit of the demographics of Islam. Kamal talked about it as about 1.5, and it's actually creeping up to maybe as high as 1.6 billion Muslims in the world today. That's 20% of the world population. If only 1% were jihadist, if only 1% were jihadist, that's over 15 million people. But in fact, it does run as high as 15 to 18% that are believed to be jihadist, who wake up every single day believing that God has called them to destroy the infidels, to kill them, and to usher in the Mahdi by reestablishing the caliphate. Well, that's frightening. And then when you add to that the fact that these jihadists are raising their children, as Kamal said, with one goal in mind, one ambition, and that is to become a martyr and to kill for Allah and to die for Allah. How many of you have seen the, the videos of the beautiful young Muslim girls, five and six years old, looking into the camera and proudly proclaiming, that they will kill the Jews and the Christians and be a martyr for Allah. It's out there. Watch it. That's our enemy. And there probably is over a hundred million of them that wake up every single day believing that they have to destroy America. And by the way, they are right here among us. They're in our cities. I'm not talking about just Muslims. I'm talking about jihadists. Their rhetoric is being spewed from the mosque all over our nation every single day. And these programs that Kamal talked about that are being funded with petrodollars, we're getting our money back. The, all the $700 billion that we're sending to the Middle East and the Gulf for fuel, we're getting it back. And we're getting it back in the form of propaganda. They're leading our next generation in the wrong direction. They're confusing them. They're lying to them in the name of tolerance and multiculturalism. Our law enforcement is spending far more time and money on sensitivity training than they are on doing the prudent kind of profiling that will catch these people before they can perpetrate an event. Who knows what's coming across our borders? The estimates now that is that we have about 11.9 million people that came into this country illegally. What else came across our border? I'm not so concerned about the people as I am. What else has come across these borders? I'm telling you, these people want weapons of mass destruction, and by the way, they will use them. Because, you see, if they will commit suicide, if they will blow themselves up, there's nothing they would rather do than be a martyr by setting off a nuclear, chemical, or biological weapon in this country. And it's coming. 
I'm telling you, it's coming. Because that is their next big objective. They want to do that in this country. And we're struggling with the whole issue of civil liberties. And I will tell you, I heard Newt Gingrich speak recently. And he said something very important. And he said, all of those of you that are so focused on civil liberties, when the next attack comes, if in fact it's a weapon of mass destruction, you will be giving up your civil liberties freely, willingly, eagerly for the protections of a government that has already failed you. It's already failed to protect you. They want weapons of mass destruction. And then you've got a wild man in Mahmoud Ahmadinejad who believes that if once his nuclear program is ready, if he fires his missiles on Israel and on the United States, even if we retaliate and kill millions of Iranians, he wins. He's created that chaos, that bloodshed that must occur before the Mahdi will return. And this guy's not a joke. This guy's the real deal, too. He's been a fanatic since he was 10 years old. He's been at this for a long time. And as one of those people who tried to rescue our 53 Americans that were being held in the embassy in Tehran in 1980, I believe, regardless of what others say, I believe he was one of the hostage takers. Yet he comes and spews his rhetoric from our cities and our universities. He denies the Holocaust. He says he's going to wipe Israel off the map. And we have a tendency to laugh at him and not take him seriously. He is serious. He has a serious nuclear program. I don't care what the national intelligence estimate says. If you read the whole thing, it also says that he does have the capability to build nuclear weapons. And don't think for one minute that he won't make every effort to use those on Israel and to use those on the United States. What are we going to do, ladies and gentlemen? What are we going to do against this enemy? You know, the first time I faced these in, this enemy up front, up close and personal, was during that hostage rescue attempt. And you know, that night, because of the situation with a crash in the desert there about 100 miles from Tehran, we had to leave eight bodies behind in a burning wreckage of a C-130 and an RH-53 helicopter. Those rabid followers of the Ayatollah Khomeini recovered those eight bodies and mutilated them and desecrated them and poked at them with sticks for the world media to see. Imagine that. Think about that. What kind of people are these? And 15 years ago yesterday, I was in a place called Mogadishu, Somalia for the events that are now known as Black Hawk Down. And I remember on the morning of the 4th of October when that big firefight was over. As I stood on the airfield and I watched on a little black and white television as CNN showed 
the bodies of some of our soldiers being dragged through the streets and mutilated and desecrated. What kind of people would do that? People that are controlled by a demonic spirit. It's diabolical. What are we going to do, ladies and gentlemen? Are we going to continue to watch this threat? Or are we going to fight back? And how do we fight back? Well, let me give you my answer to that. There is only one entity in this nation that is going to tell you the truth about the threat that we are confronted by. And that's the body of Christ. That's the people in this audience today. That's right. Trust me when I tell you your politicians aren't going to tell you the truth about this threat. It's the body of Christ. First of all, because you understand it. You understand that this is really a spiritual war. You understand that radical Islam is only one manifestation of evil. And it is the body of Christ that is going to have to come together as an army to fight this and to defeat it. Or stand by and watch and see it destroy this nation. It's the body of Christ using the power that we have through the foundation of our faith to come against this threat. Let me tell you, some of you may say today, I don't know if I have the faith. I don't know if I really have the faith. Let me tell you about faith. Let me tell you my story. I came to know Christ in 1971, three weeks after I came in the Army, after having grown up in the church, I never made a commitment to Christ until I came in the Army because God said, I've got a plan for you. And I committed my life to Christ, and I served Him. But 15 years ago today, as we came out of that city of Mogadishu, after having prayed over my soldiers and said, God, go with them, God, keep your hands on them. God, be with them. I watched a five-ton truck at 7 o'clock in the morning roll back on that airfield in Mogadishu. And our dead were on the bottom, and our wounded were stacked up on top of the dead. And as I walked over to help drop the tailgate... When that tailgate came down, the blood poured out the back of that truck like water. And I stood and looked and said, those are my soldiers. Those are my soldiers. Where are you, God? Where are you, God? I went back and sat down on my bunk when the sun went down that night. To have a talk with God, the God that had failed me. And as I sat there crying and my chest was heaving in my misery, my anger built until finally I said, 
There is no God. 23 years I had served Him. And now I said, there is no God. For if there was a God, He would have been here. He would have heard my plea. He never would have allowed this to happen. 15 years ago today. But when I said there is no God, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. And yes, God will talk to you. And this is what He said. He said, if there's no God, there's no hope. And you know what, ladies and gentlemen? I repented. And I said, God, I'm so sorry. But I don't understand. I don't understand what happened here. I don't understand where you were. And I was forgiven for my disbelief. If there is no God, there is no hope. But you know what, ladies and gentlemen? Let me add one thing to that. If there is a God, He's the only hope. Amen. And I stand as a witness to you today to tell you that there is an almighty and loving and powerful God. He is the only one that can save this nation. We are His army. He can work miracles. Many believe that it is too late for America. Many of you in this audience today, Christians, believers, people who love Jesus... Say, we're in the end times. God is coming. He is in control. And I'm just going to watch it happen. And I say to you, God has called you to action. You've got to get in this battle. You've got to start by going down here and registering and getting involved in this election. This election matters. Amen. I'm going to finish with this story. Fifteen years ago, tomorrow, after we had medevaced our casualties, I stood on that airfield in Mogadishu, and as the sun went down, I stood talking to two of my soldiers. And all of a sudden, there was an explosion. And the explosion was about from me to that piano. Those two men were standing between me and the explosion. It knocked me down, knocked me out. It knocked the two of them down as I regained consciousness. And I stood to my feet. I looked down, and I realized that one of them had been killed. It was a mortar blast. Four mortars were fired. Three went in the ocean. One landed right there within just feet of us. One man was dead. The other was one of my commanders, and I saw him writhing in agony, screaming, my legs, my legs, my legs, as blood was flowing everywhere. Fourteen other people lay on the ground, wounded to varying degrees. I had been hit in the legs, and as I I stood on wobbly legs from my injuries. I began to cry out, find the doctor, 
Find Doc Marsh. Find Rob Marsh. He was my unit surgeon. Find the doctor. Find the doctor. Little did I know he was laying in a pool of blood right next to me. He'd been hit in the renal artery down in his lower abdomen. He was bleeding to death. The medics came over with two litters. They picked us up. They took us into the mash, the, the surgical tent, just a few feet away. They laid us side by side. I reached over. I took his hand. I looked at him and I said, Rob, you hold on, buddy. You're going to make it. You hold on. You're going to make it. And then I began to pray. God, don't let him die. God, spare his life. They hooked up a blood pressure monitor and a heart rate monitor, and I watched them. It was both were dropping. God, don't let him die. I held on to his hand. Rob, you're going to make it, buddy. Just hold on. You're going to make it. His vitals were ticking away. Finally, when they were down dangerously low and there obviously wasn't much time left, he opened his eyes for the first time. His eyes were dilated. He turned his head slightly and he looked at me. And he said, you tell Barbara I love her. And his eyes rolled back and he was gone. I saw his blood pressure flatline. I saw his pulse flatline. And they reached down and they said, let go of him. He's gone. Let go of him. But I couldn't turn him loose. And I held on to his hand and I said, God, don't let him die. I know there's nothing left. But God, don't let him die. God, don't let him die. Let go of him, they said. Turn him loose. They tried to pry my hands loose. Let go of him. I kept praying. God, don't let him die. My friends, that man is serving God in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia today. He's a country doctor, and he's raising four children because the God that we pray to is not the God that the jihadists pray to. It's a real God. It's a God that performs miracles. It's a God that raises people from the dead, that heals bodies. It's the only hope we have. When you get to heaven and you stand in the presence of not just Jesus himself, but the saints, people like Abraham and like Moses and like Stephen, who as they were stoning him, said, God, don't hold it against them. When you get in their presence of those martyrs like Paul that were beheaded 
because of their faith in Jesus Christ. What are you going to say? You're going to say, I went to Calvary Chapel. Or are you going to say, I was in the battle too. I did some fighting for you too. Ladies and gentlemen, you can make two choices. You can sit on these pews and you can watch this country get destroyed. Or you can get off these pews and get back in the battle. If there is no God, there's no hope. But if there is a God, He's the only hope. Call on the name of Jesus. Amen.